0: I want to begin tonight uh, by reading a a quote. It's on the front of your worship program. It'll be on the screen behind me. It's by uh, a man named J.C. Ryle, who was an archbishop in the 1800s. And here's what he writes. He says, Nothing whatever, whether great or small, can happen to a believer without God's ordering and permission. There is no such thing as chance, luck, or accident in the Christian's journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God, and all things are working together for the believer's good. How do you feel about that quote? You know, maybe you're sitting here as you hear that quote and you're processing what that means, and you're beginning to think to yourself, you know what? That's true. You're facing some uncertainty in your life, and it's, it's bringing about hope in you as you begin to think, you know, God is working in my life, He's ordering things, and He's promised because I love and trust and follow after Him, He's going to work good for me, and it's welling up hope in you. Maybe it's causing you to reflect, you're thinking back on your life the last few years, or the way that God has worked in your life, and you're like, that was not an accident, that wasn't chance, that wasn't luck, that was God working in my life to bring me to this moment. But see, a a quote like that or a passage like Romans 8 that speaks about that can have the opposite effect too, right? It can cause you to look at your current situation or past situations and you notice that there was a lot of roadblocks, there was a lot of potholes, there was a lot of pain and a lot of suffering, a lot of wounds, and you begin to ask this question, God, why was that a part of your plan for me? How was that good? How are you ordering when this is happening, and when that happens, and that pain was afflicted upon me. Sometimes you can read quotes like this, and you can think to yourself, well, if, if God's ordering in my life for good, then I don't know if I want Him ordering my life, because things don't feel that good right now, right? It's, it's normal for us to have that reaction, because we base things off of our experience, right? We judge based off our experience, we make decisions based upon what we can reason and rationalize to, and so what happens is, when we face things in our life that don't make sense to us, we can't rationalize how this could be good or how this is being used for something in the future, and we don't have past experiences to kind of draw from, the natural tendency is to then say, wait, why? How is this a part of my life? and And it's understandable. But here's the problem. When we begin to function like this, and when we begin to think like this, it begins to build something up in us. And that's bitterness. Do you deal with that? Do you struggle with that? Bitterness towards God, bitterness towards others that have wronged you. Because you can't make sense of why this thing is happening, or this thing isn't happening, that you believe is good for you, and is a part of the plan of your life. You see your life and my life is like a puzzle. It's a bunch of little pieces being put together and each piece is important. If you've ever made a puzzle before, you know that you need every single piece and they're uniquely made and they fit together perfectly to create a grand and beautiful picture. The problem is we assume that we know what the box art looks like. We assume that we know the picture. We assume that we know what is good for our life and how it's all going to come to be. And so what happens is, when we deal with piece by piece, which is the only thing that we're capable of doing in our limited experience and our finite mind, we're only able to see the actual current piece we're dealing with in the moment. We look at the piece that we've been dealt, and it maybe has some rough edges. Maybe it's one of those really boring pieces. It's just like one color. Maybe it's like a really confusing one. You're looking at it like, what is this? And what happens is, because we believe that we know... The picture, we look at a piece in the moment that we're in and we say, This isn't part of my story. This isn't my piece. God, why is this here? This is rough. This hurts. This is wounding. This is boring. This is bland. This is confusing. This makes no sense. And see this this analogy is helpful to me because I hate puzzles. I mean, I absolutely hate puzzles. Like if you were to call me and say, Carter, hey, why don't you come over and have some friends over on a Friday night? It's gonna be great. We're gonna do a puzzle. And we're going to have a great time. You might as well call me and say, Carter, why don't you come over on Friday night? i have some friends over. We're going to stare at a wall for multiple hours. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I already know what's happening. Some of you here are puzzle people. I know. And here's what you're planning. You know later we're going to have our Super Bowl party and we're going to have food and drinks and the game outside. And you're, you're going to come and corner me and you're going to explain to me why puzzles are great. And I'm going to look at you with a blank stare, because I don't understand it. To me, it's madness. Why in the world would you subject yourself to putting together little cardboard pieces that's the most tedious work ever, and especially when you already know the picture? It's on the box, right there. It's like not a mystery. I don't understand. But here's why I think some of you that have explained to me before, because some of you know my puzzle hatred. You've explained to me why you like puzzles, and that's because You like to take piece by piece knowing each piece is unique and each piece matters and you like to figure out how they all fit together because you know once you put them all together it's going to create something spectacular, it's going to create something beautiful because you know the end product. See, from God's vantage point in your life, he knows the end product. He knows what he's doing. He knows how each piece fits together and each piece is important. It may look boring to you in the moment. It may be completely confusing in that weird piece in the moment. It may have rough edges in the moment, but it is important because it's building something that is beautiful and spectacular. And the problem for us is that we have a hard time believing that. And so instead of trusting God that He has actually created the box art and He's building our life as a puzzle piece by piece, we just put God inside the box. And we keep Him in there. And then we get frustrated when we're dealing with a piece that we don't understand. And what we're going to see tonight in the story of Joseph is that he didn't put God in the box. He trusted God that he was building his life piece by piece and that it was for good even though, as you know, if you've been with us through this season of overcome in the life of Joseph, that he's had a lot of hard pieces. He's had a lot of confusing pieces, a lot of rough edge pieces, that if you just stared at that one piece, you could totally understand why he would be like, God, you don't love me. You, have, you want nothing to do with me, and I don't want you ordering my life because I'm a slave, and now I'm a prisoner, and it's just one thing after the next. But he trusted in God that he was building something beautiful, And it created something in him that is very unique and is very peculiar, especially in this story, is that he was a man of forgiveness towards his brothers. And so this is where we pick up the story tonight. It picks up with uh, verse 1. It says this, When Jacob had learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So here's what's happened. Joseph, as we saw last week, was elevated to second in command over all of Egypt. He is now the governor. He is established and is creating and running this national rationing plan that God gave him as he shared it with Pharaoh. And it says that Pharaoh and everybody around experienced God in Joseph because of his faith and his courage and his generosity and his concern for the common good. And so now he has established this national rationing system and seven years have passed and they've had seven years of harvest and they've been storing all of this grain and now the famine has hit. And you saw last week the dream that Pharaoh had. The famine is like skinny cows with teeth that eat the fat cows and like it, that's what's happening. It is a terrifying time. It is a severe famine, and it is affecting not only Egypt, but the whole known world. And people are dying because of this famine, and yet Egypt has food, because Joseph, for seven years now, has been leading the charge to store food. And so we pick up here with Jacob all the way in Canaan, and they're starving. They have no food left, and they hear that there's food in Egypt. And Jacob looks at the ten brothers, and he says, you need to go and get us some food. So we can survive. And so it says that ten brothers of Joseph went to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, his blood brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus, the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So you can see already, there's still great dysfunction in this family, in Jacob's family, amongst all the brothers. He sends 10 of the brothers, and then one of them, Benjamin, the youngest, Joseph's blood brother, he keeps back, because Jacob was told 20 years ago that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. But we know that, in fact, his brothers sold him into slavery, and that's why he's in Egypt. And so Jacob is not really buying the story, and so he's fearful that if Benjamin goes with his brothers, that the same thing's going to happen. So he keeps Benjamin back, and the ten brothers go to Egypt to buy grain. And when they get there, you can imagine as they're walking the journey all the way to Egypt, from Canaan to Egypt, they're asking themselves this question, like, is Joseph there? Like, is he dead? Most likely he's dead. It's been 20 years. He was enslaved. Maybe he's still alive, but he's working for some family. There's no way in the world they could have imagined what happened to Joseph. Second, in command over all of Egypt. And so it says this in verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land. He was the one who sold all, to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came to him and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. This is the moment in the story if you're reading and you're like, okay, what's going to happen? Like, what is Joseph going to do? So it says that Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly with them. To them, where did you come from? He said, and they said, land of pain and buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers; they did not recognize him. You can imagine why they didn't recognize him. One, as they're walking to Egypt, they're thinking Joseph is probably alive. If he is alive, he's probably you know at some family and he's serving some family. There's no way in the world they could have imagined that Joseph is the governor of all of Egypt, and they don't recognize him. But Joseph knows that. These are his brothers. But he doesn't disclose who he is. It's interesting the story here, we don't know why. So if you're reading along, you're you're confused as to what is Joseph thinking. Is he angry? Is he plotting revenge? I mean, why is he remaining incognito? There's some type of plan that he's cooking up. Because he's not revealing who he is. But we do know something. 20 years ago, this moment was predicted. When God gave uh, Joseph two dreams... When he was 17 years old that his brothers would bow down before him and joseph is standing there as governor and his brothers are bowing down before him something they said they'd never do and one of the main reasons why they attempted to kill joseph instead decided to sell him into slavery and it says in verse 9 that joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them can you imagine how that feels to joseph like the puzzle pieces are all coming together right 20 years ago, God gives him this dream, and now he's standing there, and his brothers are in front of him, and he's probably sensing that God is sovereign. He's working his plan, and it has had a lot of ups and downs, but here I am, standing before my brothers, bowed before me. But if you know what happened 20 years ago, something's off. Here's what's off. There's only 10 brothers. The dream was 11 brothers, and also his father and his mother, but primarily focus on the 11 brothers, and we know that one of them is still back in Canaan with his father, Jacob. Benjamin is there. And so this isn't the fulfillment of the dream yet. And so Joseph continues to hide his identity, and he said to them, You're spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, your servants have have come to buy food. We are sons of one man. We are honest men. Imagine how that felt to Joseph. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. See, this w- would not have been an uncommon claim for Joseph to make because the world is starving. And so they would have been checking people as they came into the cities to make sure that people weren't spies because spies would have come in. Maybe armies are sitting off on the horizon. They're waiting to come storm the city and to take the grain. And so Joseph says to his brothers, you're spies. He knows they're not, but he labels them with this. And they begin to defend themselves. They begin to say, we are servants, our 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is, is this day with our father, and one is no more. He says, we're, we're just a family. One of our brothers has died, and the other is, is back with our father, in Canaan. So Joseph looks at them and, and he doesn't relent. He says, You're spies. And here's what's going to happen you're going to go back to Canaan and you're going to get your brother, your youngest brother, or the one who stayed back, and you're going to bring him back here. Or you're going to get no more food. And I'm going to hold some of you, all of you except for one, I'm going to hold you in prison here in Egypt and you're gonna with your youngest brother. So Joseph puts them in prison for three days as they're beginning to think about this, and then he takes them out of prison. He says, "Change plans. Here's the deal: I'm keeping one of you. The rest of you can go back with food to feed your family. But you're going to return with your youngest brother and all of you together back to Egypt. And I'm going to keep Simeon. He's going to stay here. And as this plan is given." to the brothers, they begin to talk with each other. And they don't realize that Joseph can understand them, or that he's listening, but he can, and they begin to speak to each other and fight with each other. They They said, this is and Reuben, the oldest brother, stands up and he says, listen guys, I told you 20 years ago, do not harm Joseph. It's a bad idea and you didn't listen to me and look what's happened. Now we're here in Egypt. Simeon's going to stay. We have to go get Benjamin. Our father's not going to want to let Benjamin go. How are we going to get more food? I mean, we're in a world of trouble because of 20 years ago. It says that Joseph, as he's listening, and they don't realize that he turns away and he starts to weep. And he, and he wipes his face off and he cleans up and he turns back to them and he says, Here, you're gonna take some grain. I'm gonna fill your sacks up with grain, you're gonna journey back home, Simeon Stain. Get your brother and come back. So they go and they leave. And it says one of the brothers as they're heading home to Canaan checks the bag and he notices in the bag is not only grain, but money. You see they brought money to to buy food, but now the sack is full of money as well. And so he's nervous. They get home. They talk to their dad, Jacob, and they tell dad what's going on. And they begin to dump out their bags with all the grain. And they not only have grain, but every single one of them has money too. And their heart why they're not only spies now, but thieves. And Jacob is just falling apart. The father at the seams. And he says, "This everything is against me." Twenty years ago, I lost Joseph, the son I loved. Now my sons go to get food, we're starving here, they come back with food, but now they're not only seen as spies, but thieves, and I have to send my youngest, Benjamin, who I don't want to send, to Egypt, and who knows if they're going to come back, and one of my sons is already in Egypt, Simeon, everything is against me. And so Jacob looks at his sons and he says, you're going to stay here, we're not, we're not, we're not going. It's almost as if he says, Simeon's a lost cause. But what happens is they run out of food. They'd run out of food because there's no food in the land. The famine has not let up. And so Jacob begins to make the decision. He says, we're going to have to go get more food. And now Judah, one of the brothers, stands up and he goes to his dad and he says this, Dad, I know you're not going to want to let Benjamin go, but you have to. We can't get food without him. We can't get Simeon back without him. And I, Judah, am going to pledge my life. I'm going to pledge myself for him he will be returned safely. I'm going to keep an eye on him. Don't worry. And Jacob is worried still, but he r- realizes that they have to get food. And so he sends the brothers out and Benjamin as well and they head back to Egypt. And they bring with them gifts and money and all this stuff. You can imagine how nervous they are, right? As they're coming back to Egypt, they bring back all the money And they're brought into the governor's palace. And as they get to the governor's palace, you know, they're probably figuring out what they're going to say, what their speech is going to be. And as the doors open, they're invited in. They're greeted warmly. There's a feast. They wash their feet. They feed their donkeys. Simeon is released, and they're all there together. And then Joseph comes out, and he says this. Peace to you, do not be afraid. You see, they gathering the the gifts and the money they're like here we didn't mean to take the money we're not thieves we're not spies here's some extra gifts on top of it and joseph says to them they still don't know who he is peace to you do not be afraid and they begin to have conversation over dinner and joseph finds out that their father his father jacob is still alive and it says that he leaves the room again to weep this is the second time he's been brought to tears and then afterwards, he pulls himself together, and he says, okay, all 11 of you can return home. You're going to have more food. I'm going to give you your money back. Head back and care for your family. And the brothers have to be feeling like, man, this is amazing. Like, this worked out perfect. Got Simeon back. Benjamin's okay. We didn't have to spend any money. And now we got food, and they begin to head out. And the guards stop them at the gate. And the guards say, one of you has stolen the silver cup of the governor. And they look around, and they're like, no, We didn't steal anything. We're not thieves. We're not spies. We just have what was given to us. And they begin to, to label, and they begin to say, listen, listen, none of us have stolen anything. You can check our bags. And if anyone here did steal the cup, you can kill them. So the guards begin to check the bags, starting with the oldest, Reuben, all the way down to the youngest. And they get to Benjamin's bag. And they reach in Benjamin's bag, and he has the cup. Because Joseph had planted it there. And it just destroys them because they know what is going to happen. Benjamin's going to be killed. They've already said that you can kill whoever finds it. And they take him back to the governor's palace before Joseph. And they know what's going to happen. It's going to kill not only Benjamin, but their father. And Judah stands up again. And he goes to Joseph and he, he begins to explain to Joseph, the governor. He says, listen... I know what happened. He, I, we didn't realize he stole the cup. I know that he has to be punished. We, we said that whoever had it could be put to death, but I want to take the punishment for Benjamin. You don't realize I, I pledged to my father that I, he would return safely, and if he doesn't come back, it's gonna kill my dad. So I'll take his guilt, I'll take his punishment, Just let everybody else go. I know that justice has to be served here. And in this moment, it says that Joseph weeps so loudly that all of Egypt could hear. These aren't the same brothers. Now they're protecting Benjamin. His whole life, Joseph wanted to be protected. But he was hated, and he was sold into slavery. And now Judah is offering his life for his youngest brother, Benjamin, and and he falls apart and looks at his brothers, and he says, I am Joseph. Imagine that moment, the shock, the emotion, the fear, as the brothers think, "You're, you're who? You're Joseph? And they begin to think, what is going to happen to all of us now? It says the Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. Imagine how scary that was. As they're kneeling and bowing, the 11 of them, the fulfillment of the dream, right before Joseph, and he says, come near to me. And they come near. I mean, they're cowering in fear because they're thinking, are we going to be killed? Are we going to be put in prison? Is he going to save us? He just wanted to teach us a lesson. Hey, you put me in slavery. Now you guys are enslaved. I got put in prison because of what you did. Now you're going to be in prison. They're feeling the tension of this moment, fearful. And here is what he says. Joseph said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. That's weird. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord, over, Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He looks at his brothers who have sold, who sold him into slavery now 22 years earlier. They're all bowing before him. And he gives this speech, and it has nothing to do with him. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, listen, you really hurt me. You sold me into slavery, and you don't even know what happened in my life. I mean, I've had so many ups and downs. I've been in prison, and now I'm here as governor. I'm sure it's a shock to you. But listen, I decided that I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to be the bigger person, and I'm going to forgive you. He doesn't make it about himself. He doesn't even make it about them. He doesn't say to them, listen, I, I need you now to earn a little bit of forgiveness. I need you to grovel a little bit. I need to know that there's some semblance of remorse. And if I know that there's remorse, then maybe I will forgive you. He doesn't even ask them, hey, why did you sell me into slavery? And now you're sitting here defending Benjamin. I mean, what happened? What changed? He doesn't ask them anything. He doesn't say anything about them. He says nothing about themselves. The entire focus of the speech is on God. The entire focus. He says, listen to these words. Do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Can you imagine looking at somebody who has severely wronged you? and saying, do not be mad at what you did to me. Can you imagine? That's not normal. That is so difficult to even imagine saying. Don't be distressed or angry at what you have done. I mean, even the most forgiving of us would say something like this. You really hurt me, but I am choosing to forgive you. It's so easy to make forgiveness about ourselves. And Joseph here doesn't focus on himself. He doesn't focus on others. Instead, he says to his brothers, listen, I don't want you to think about your guilt. I don't want you to think about what you've done. I don't want you to think about yourself at all. Instead, I want you to see God's grace. I want you to see that God was working in my life, that he is, in fact, the one that sent me here. You did not send me here. He sent me here. This has to be hitting all of them right now as it hits the reader when we read it, as we listen to it. As you think about what's happened in Joseph's life, every single thing had to happen exactly as it did. Or else this moment would never have occurred. If the brothers decided to kill Joseph or decided to not sell him into slavery, but instead, you know, just bring him back to his father, punish him, rough him up a little bit, and then just ignore him. None of this would have transpired. What would have happened is that not only everyone in Egypt, but Jacob and all of the brothers, including Joseph, they would have all died because of the famine. There would have been no storing of food. So many people in the known world would have been wiped out because Joseph would have never made it to Egypt. He would have never been at Potiphar's house. And then he would never have been put in prison and falsely accused to where he can interpret the dreams of two other prisoners that eventually would lead him to be elevated to interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. And now, ultimately, Pharaoh making him governor to establish this rationing system to save money, to save food, that might be the care for all Egyptians and the known world so he would stand before his family and be able to provide for them. It would have never happened, which means there would have been no Israel, no David, no prophets, no Jesus. Every single piece was unique, and every single piece mattered. And it had to happen exactly as it did. And Joseph looks at his brothers, and he says, Do not think about yourself. Recognize what God has done. He sent me here. You see, here's the heart of Joseph's speech, his lesson to us and to his brothers. It's the reason why he forgave God. He says this, this is my favorite verse. He says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. You sold me into slavery, but God. I was falsely accused and placed in prison, but God. I was brought before Pharaoh and asked to interpret two of his dreams, but God. There was a famine that was going to wipe out all of Egypt, including you, but God. You see, when you look at your life and your setbacks and your roadblocks and your suffering and your wounds and your pain and all the different things happening in your life, what's your refrain? But my boss. But my so called friends. But my family. But my ex. But my lack of opportunities. But this city. But my accuser. But my past. But my offender. You see, Joseph says, Listen, I've been through a lot. I'm not minimizing the pain, but God was at work. You see, forgiveness is onerous, and bitterness is effortless. It is so easy to be bitter, but forgiveness leads to progression, and bitterness leads to deterioration. Nothing is accomplished in bitterness. It would have been easy for Joseph just to, to not forgive his brothers, to strike revenge, to teach him a lesson. But it would have destroyed his soul. It would have polluted his soul. You see, when you harbor bitterness, it affects your soul. It gets all over you. It's as if you're looking at a painting that's being painted before you and say so that painting is another person and, and, and you know the picture's not complete. And when you look at the painting, as the painter is is kind of crafting this picture, you're noticing that there's some parts of the painting that are a little offensive, some parts that don't make sense, some parts that are incomplete, some parts that are ugly. And you look at it and you say, you know what? That picture, that person is not worth forgiveness or patience. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to grab some paint of my own. It's going to be black paint, and I'm just going to... right over top of that painting. So I don't have to look at it anymore. I don't have to deal with it anymore. And here's what I know. When you paint, you get it all over you, right? It's all over your hands, your like, clothes, it's like on the bottom of your foot. You're like, how'd that happen? It's everywhere. And when you harbor bitterness, you paint in black all over people and it gets all over you. It affects your soul. It affects you And Joseph here chooses forgiveness. It was onerous. It was not easy for him to do that, but it leads to progression. And this is true, that forgiveness is onerous, but it leads to progression, not only in the life of Joseph, but in your life. If you're sitting here now beginning to think about the people that you need to forgive, and you begin to think about the people and the things that you need to release in terms of bitterness, I don't want you to miss the heart of forgiveness. The heart of forgiveness is not you. It's not you and your power. The heart of forgiveness is not the person that you're going to forgive or stop being bitter towards that they have to earn it a little bit, show a little bit remorse once they do. The heart of forgiveness is God. Joseph forgave because of God. He worked every little piece together in his life, and some of them were really difficult for him to deal with. They were rough edges. And yet he saw God's mercy and God's forgiveness and God working in his life time and time and time again. And because of that, Joseph forgave. Here's what's so interesting about this story. As this whole plan is unfolding, as Joseph is keeping his identity hidden, When he breaks down and reveals himself and says, I am Joseph, and he chooses to forgive, it happens when Judah comes up to him. And Judah says, take my life for Benjamin's. I will take his guilt, I will take his punishment. And Joseph loses it. This is what leads Joseph to reveal himself and to forgive. Here's why that's interesting. The very beginning of the book of Matthew says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of who? Judah and his brothers. You see, Jesus comes from the line of Judah. Jesus is the better Judah. You see this example of exchanging your life for another, of taking the guilt for another in the life of Judah, but we see it perfectly in Christ, who comes from the same line and is the greater and the better Judah, who took our sin, and our shame, and our guilt upon himself and instead gave us forgiveness. He paid the penalty of death that we deserve and he didn't deserve it. He was innocent. And yet he took it upon his shoulders. You see, Joseph is led to forgiveness when Judah steps up and is willing to sacrifice his life for another. And just like Joseph, we should be ready and willing to forgive because Jesus, the better Judah, has sacrificed his life for us already. This is what Ephesians says. Paul tells us, get rid of all bitterness, not just a little bit of it, all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Why do you forgive? Because Christ has forgiven you. You may think to yourself, but Carter, I don't know if I can, but God has forgiven you. I don't think they deserve it, Carter, but God has forgiven you. I don't have the strength to, but God has forgiven you. See, but God has forgiven you, therefore you can forgive. Forgive. And our lives as God is building these pieces together to build something spectacular and beautiful is going to have many 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 moments where we have the opportunity to forgive or we have the opportunity to harbor bitterness you see the way forward for the believer is a path of forgiveness and if the way forward is a path of forgiveness that means the way forward is Jesus he says that he is the way the truth in the life. You see, when Jesus is the truth, you can forgive, because what that person did, and what that person said, doesn't define you. You're defined by Christ, and what he says. When Jesus is the life, you don't have to protect yourself by harboring bitterness, and refusing forgiveness, because Christ is your life. You're secure, and when Christ is the way, when you feel like, I don't have strength, I don't know if I can forgive, that sounds really hard for me to do, Christ is the way, and He will give you strength. You see, the horizon needs to be Christ. Our focus, our field of vision, the box art is Jesus. We don't know how God is building the puzzle together, but we trust that it's good. And as we walk piece by piece by piece, and God is pitting everything together perfectly, some of the pieces will be rough. Some of them will be bland. Some of them will be confusing. But believer, you are called to your horizon, to make Jesus the way, and to let go of bitterness and to forgive because you've been forgiven. Will you pray with me?